Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Pillow Talk with Mark and B, the podcast where we just talk. I'm B, and I'm here with my husband. Hey there. Hi there. We got another guest join us today, which is exciting. Yeah, a couple weeks ago, mm-hmm. Rob joined us for an episode about gays against groomers. So go check out that episode if you haven't. But he's back. Hi, Rob. Hey, guys. It's great to be back. We had a really good conversation last time. Yeah, we're so excited to, to talk to you about something else that, of course, we always talk about. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. This is going to be going to be a fun subject. Yeah, so we're here to talk about religion because you had mentioned on the last show um, that you've studied a ton of them. Mm-hmm. So yeah. can you tell us everything that you like? What have you studied? <laughs> yeah, give us all your knowledge in four Go. sentences. Yeah, like, no, <laughs> what have you studied specifically? Well, I have studied uh, almost everything I could get my hands on. So I'll give you a little rundown of my history, and then you'll kind of understand where I, how I got to where I'm at. Uh, I grew up Catholic. So when I was a, a little boy, I would go to uh, Sunday service with my grandma. I would go to catechism, and I grew up doing that, had my first communion in Clinton, Michigan, uh, where I was raised. And then later on, we moved and I was uh, put into a Baptist church. We relocated and my mom, not being particular about religion, said uh, this bus driver came along one day and said, hey, we'll take your kids on Sundays to the Baptist church. North Sharon Baptist <laughs> oh, okay. church. It was a and different so, uh, time back then. You could get away with stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> we take your kids yeah. on Saturday. <laughs> And that church actually turned out to have a history of having child molesters there. So oh, that's, yeah. I'm yeah. Shocked. Yeah. They were known for that apparently. So um, I started taking the church bus on Sundays with my brother, which really was like a vacation from my mom to get us out. She wasn't a particularly religious person, which is why any old church would do. And, uh, and so we would attend that. And then uh, later on, I would attend non-denominational Pentecostal type churches with uh a mentor uh, who is my wrestling coach, actually. And uh, and then I would just uh, later on, as I was developing around the age of um, 16, 17, I still had this uh, this interest in religion that I had developed on my own side of where I had been placed. So uh, about the age of uh, 20 uh, to 21, I had my first encounter with the uh, Church of Scientology. Um, and what happened in that occasion is I did a personality test online and they said, come on down to the org. We'll give you your results and, you know, we'll show you how to improve your life. Yeah, so I went yeah. down to, yeah. And I said, oh, cool. I did the test, gave me this chart, looked interesting, gave me a time to be there. And so my, my stepmom, uh, this is in Dallas now, uh, because I'd moved from Michigan to Dallas. I lived in Orlando uh, and Tallahassee back to Michigan and I've been around a couple other places uh she went in with me and uh, we ended up buying up several books what is Scientology and uh a couple other ones so we left and I took the books and I never I didn't return back to the org I went on to move to Orlando where I went to school uh, for computer animation and I had those books with me and I took them to Tallahassee where I ended up losing all my possessions in a series of activities and shenanigans and which is for the best and they went with it so moving forward i moved up to michigan and that was at the uh age of uh 20 21 
And uh, I started to get really involved in my local churches. Uh, sometimes I would attend multiple church services on a Sunday. On a few occasions, I would go church hopping, I called it. You know, you go to this church <laughs> and you can catch this one. If you plant right, you can make. And I was just addicted to church. But I was also, uh, I really, when I came back to Michigan, I realized because I lost all my possessions, I wouldn't have them when I died. And I prayed about that. I said, I know that I won't take anything with me. Um, so, uh, and that's when, uh, and I said, just help me to become obsessed with you, God. That was my prayer when I was accepting what had happened. And then, and then from that moment on, actually, I became really just obsessed with everything from televangelism to reading my Bible, to copying my Bible book by book, memorizing chapters verbatim. Um, and that's all I talked and thought about. I would go to work and just come home and all night long, I would just, you know, I was really hungry after that. And then uh, I ended up joining the Seventh-day Adventist church uh, because I had um, this question in my mind about the the fourth commandment and the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy and how it was on the calendar that the Sabbath was Saturday. And this and through talking to a friend, she's like, well, I know these people were Seventh-day Adventists and that's what they believe. And they're old friends of mine and I should put you in touch with them. So I ended up attending a church there for uh, uh, a couple of years and I really enjoyed it. I was, uh, you know, but the problem is like with most of these religions that I would come into contact with in my life, my questions would kind of be oversized for the organization that I'm in. Like it's not something they considered. It's not part of their doctrine. Go to the next church, you know. So uh, I, with the Seventh-day Adventists, they were really big on doctrine over there. So I was doing a lot of studying, a lot of courses and stuff about, you know, it's a lot of end of the world stuff. They're very focused on the book of Revelations and the prophecies and that kind of thing. And uh, then I Is had it, an, uh, the Latter-day Saints and the what is Seventh-day? Yeah, what, what? Seventh-day Adventists? You think of the Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, and the Seventh-day Adventists. They're all kind of... Okay, yeah, okay. Kind of tie it all in. Like, I know a lot of these kind of just casually in passing. Yeah, but, but I've never heard of that one specifically, but Mormonism. Okay, so then yeah, remind me to come back to the end times and revelations. <laughs> Let's talk about that. <laughs> yeah, so that was really based around the idea that the Catholic Church, the Pope is the Antichrist, and uh, the Catholic Church is basically what was going to be persecuting the end times people. And, I did not know that that was their view at all. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, it, you know, and there's a lot to be said for that perspective. I can, um, I can get on board. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it jives, you know, looking at where things have gone. So uh, let's see. Seventh-day Adventism ran dry when I started questioning the state of the dead. So for me, uh, the scriptures were talking about the afterlife. They would, Jesus would talk about his miracles. He'd say, these things and greater you shall do, speaking of his miracles. But in my churches, I wasn't seeing any miracles. And my pastor, and, and nobody was doing them. And if you ask about them, you know, it's one of those things you find out when you die, or miracles don't happen, or, you know, prophecies, all these, you know, reasons why we're not seeing it in that church or whatever. And so uh, so I moved on from there. And the next logical place uh, would end up being with the Messianic Jews. So I started attending a Messianic Jewish synagogue 
uh, in Dallas uh, at some point. And uh, that was kind of like the next logical thing because they kept the seventh day Sabbath. Um, but, and they were like closest to scripture, you know, without going away, which most religions don't account for Sabbath anymore. And, uh, and so that's one of the big teachings of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, how that changed, that in 321 AD, Constantine the Great changed the Sabbath from uh, Saturday to the venerable day of the sun god, Sunday. And so by transferring the solemnity of that day through the power of the papacy, they moved that Sabbath day, uh, something that can't happen biblically, really, you know. And so uh, that is uh, that was the next place that I went. And in this process, though, I was still searching uh, for good answers to how to experience the spiritual world personally, because for me, this whole journey and listening to all these amazing stories in church wasn't going to do me any good unless I was going to be experiencing all the cool stuff they were advertising that we quickly forget about as soon as service is over. And yeah. so... Yeah. And by the way, I know I'm kind of doing the long form here. So just interrupt me. No, this is amazing. Keep going. Yeah, I have a couple notes already kind of jotted down. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, And so that led me eventually uh, to, and there was other things I received Tao, uh, which is, you know, the Chinese Tao. I received that during a ceremony and I will participate in uh, different ceremonies. Now I've gone through baptism probably three or four times. I was baptized as a Catholic. I kept getting baptized at different churches because I wanted to make sure it stuck. When I was <laughs> there. Growing up, yeah, exactly. When I was growing up, going to church, I would get saved very often. Come up here if you haven't received the Lord. I'm like, I don't think I'm different. I better go up. So I was always getting saved. Just, you know, just get saved. Make sure one of them would stick. And um, so eventually I found my way to Rudolf Steiner. Well, actually, I, I jumped a bit there. And that's when I found the secret. I don't know if you've heard of the secret about the law yeah. of attraction. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah. So when I first got into that, it it opened my mind to this metaphysical thinking that I hadn't had. And I remember there was this uh, old woman in um, at the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and her name was Arlene. And she said, Robert, she said, my grandson got into that, and he got into the occult. You won't want to mess with that. I said, oh, Arlene, get out of here. I'll be fine. Because for me, it's like whatever I would take in, I'm going to compare it to the scriptures. You know, they search the scriptures daily, find out if it's so, you know. Uh, And so when I was learning the secret, which it was really eye opening for me, because it really ended up being for me what prayer is. Ask, believe and receive with no doubting. According to your faith, so be it unto you. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Uh, and I could go on and on because the scriptures are really heavy with you cast your own vision, you know. Uh, so that actually turned out to be very biblical for me. And it did turn out to be, I think, a universally true principle. But, you know, most churches and stuff at that time were like, that's bad. It's prosperity gospel stuff. Or some people may consider it witchcraft. And, um, and later on... Uh, and so it was through that that I ended up uh, coming into uh, a lot of esoteric spiritual stuff right before I went and um, actually moved across the street from the Church of Scientology. And so I found myself back there after many years after having 
lived in Michigan, been in Texas where I met them, moved to Orlando, Tallahassee, back to Michigan for some years, and back in Texas. And would you know what? I'm moving in with a friend, and they live right across the street from the Church of Scientology Celebrity Center, Dallas. And so one day we're walking down the road, and I'm like, I went there several years ago. I said, let's walk back in there and see what's going on. And so we walked in, and uh, we walked in down the hallway and into the main room, and it was empty, this big old pink mansion. Uh, and I said, hello, hello, is anybody in here? And this woman came out of the shadows of the hallway. Hi, yes, how can I help you? I said, hi, yeah, my name is Robert. And even though I had now these books in the past, I didn't really study them thoroughly. I didn't really know my, anything more about Scientology than what that South Park episode gave us. If you ever seen that, this is what Scientologists actually believe in the OT3 the, yeah. The Tons and the <laughs> Yeah. Great episode for sure. Yeah. It it was very educational. And so uh, you know, I brought that up to her and I said, you know, I said, What do you guys believe? And she's like, Well, what do you believe? I said, Well, she's like, uh, and she was throwing this logic back and forth, and she's like, We we believe what is true is what is true for you. So it was this big circle logic thing she was giving me, and it basically told me she wasn't going to tell me any of her beliefs because she was just going to make it up to me. And so I said, uh, okay, well, that's interesting. She's like, well, why don't you come back on Sunday? We're going to have a service, and you can meet somebody there. I said, okay. So I came back a few days later on a Sunday service. Uh, oh, you know what? I need to go back uh, just a little thing. The night before I went there, I was praying and I was going through the Kabbalah and I was repeating the word Yodi Vahi, which is the sacred name of God. And I was doing this meditation on it, just trying to like get it in my soul. That next day, this old man stopped me on the sidewalk while I was walking down the sidewalk with my friend. And he said, uh, Yodi Vahi to me, he said, you need to, he said, stop. And he started talking all this Kabbalistic language. And then he said, you need to go to that org and get on the bridge. And I said, huh? He's like, you need to go to the Church of Scientology and get on the bridge to total freedom. And he told me he was a master Kabbalist and all this. So I thought, well, it must be a sign from God. Because here this person out of nowhere saying these words that nobody's ever said to me in my life right after praying yeah. it out and giving me instruction to go in there. And so, uh, and so that was like one of the reasons why I, you know, expedited my, my journey there. So anyway, back to talking to this woman, she's like, come next Sunday and sit in service. So I did. And I came and there was three people, well, three people, including me there. This guy named Jared, who was going to run the thing, some other guy who was sitting there and me. And we were in this room, which could have sat maybe 25 people for a Sunday service. Nobody showed up. It was just them. And he comes out with this big book of Scientological scripture. And uh, he goes on, he makes some general statements and stuff. And then he reads the from the thing of the Scientology. And by the way, this has now been 14 years ago. So there's a lot of details that are not fresh man, yeah, except yeah. what I've learned, you know. Um, and so after this little church service meetup thing, which is very like underwhelming for me, it was not... It wasn't sensational. I didn't, it wasn't anything crazy psychologically that I learned. Uh, I went outside and I'm talking to this woman. Her name is Joanne Campisi. 
And her family owned a series of restaurants in Dallas called Campisi's Pizza, which is well known there. It's been around for a long time. And uh, and she was really nice to me. And, and I'm talking to her in this outside courtyard area. And this woman comes out from the door from inside and says, hello, Robert. I said, yeah. She's like, I have somebody in here that wants to talk with you when you get done. And her name was Anne. And Anne O'Connor. Oh, wait, no, it was Anne O'Connor. No, this was a different one. What was her name? It doesn't matter. She was an OT8 uh, from the Sea Org. She was a very high level, very energetic. She was sent there to organize the org and stuff. Uh, so she, I go into this office with this guy, uh, and he sits me down and he starts talking about his life. He says, I own this company. We make hats for black ladies. It's black lady church hats. He's like talking about these big, giant, flappity hats. They're only worn by that. So he's like, he's the largest producer of those in the country or the world or something. And he's like, aside of that, he's on the board there. And he's like, Robert, do you like to help people? I said, yeah, I like to help people. So would you like to help us help people? I said, yeah. And he started to explain to me what they do to help people. And ultimately that they send people who are going to be processing people through their processes to a place called uh, in, in Clearwater. Uh, called flag and uh, that, you know, they would prepare me and send me to flag and Clearwater, Florida to be trained up to be an auditor so that I would come back and work for them and service their parishioners. So I said, Oh, that sounds great. And then, um, so basically, okay, show up on Monday. So then I just, it became like a full-time job. Uh, I showed up that day and I was there, up to um, 80 hours a week, every week for the next 10 months. And I would be there from the moment I woke to the time that I'd go to bed. And I actually ended up, uh, after a series of incidences, I ended up moving in with the Scientologists. So we were in a two-bedroom two apartment. It was a one or two-bedroom apartment. There was five of us. So I was on the couch where my forefathers had been and their forefathers before them had been. And there was some people on the floor. The guy who was the chief head honcho, he got the room up there. And yeah. so we were all just Scientologists making next to nothing, giving all of our time and energy to the org, living there. <laughs> and and what does that mean, giving all of your, like, what did you do for that? What, what was your day-to-day? My day-to-day, uh, it changed a lot. Uh, but the main things that happened was, when you join staff, one of the things, one of the benefits is they put you into the academy. And that is where people are really forking over thousands of dollars, hundreds and thousands of dollars to participate in each of these courses that have to be uh, paid for and then completed satisfactorily to move to the next level. And they test you along the way to make sure you have increased cognitive capacities, spiritual development, in order to measure and prove that you're attaining spiritual freedom. In conjunction with that, you're also getting auditing, which is their spiritual counseling, which is done on uh, this device called an e-meter, an electropsychometer. And the and it, to break down electropsychometer, electroelectric psi or mind or soul, this is my uh, thesaurus translation of it, uh, ometer, meter. So it's an electric soul reader, electric soul meter of sorts. And uh, it explicitly says on a, a placard that's put in the bottom of every one of these electrosychometers that they are not lie detectors. 
because when you're holding these two cans, which are kind of like if you took like a SpaghettiOs can and you cut out one end of each one, you know how you make like a telephone conversation, <laughs> right? Um, each of those cans has a little electrode tied to it that go back to this e-meter. The e-meter is putting out a very tiny current of electricity, which goes into one can into the hand, into the head of the person, and then out the other arm of that can where the machine reads the differential. So it knows what it put out and what's coming back. If it gets tracking you right now. What's that? They're tracking you right now. Well, no, well, they might be. Well, we'll go into that because I I don't think so in particular, but you can get yourself in trouble with them. I've heard of these that so many times before, and I've never actually heard um, what they're doing and like the actual electricity behind it. I was an electrician for 10 years. So like hearing actually the process of how the current goes and stuff or how they're wanting to, like that's super interesting. And I I just, even before you were talking about this auditing thing, like, how do you measure how advanced you're getting and how your cognitive function, like what are the measurements that they're using? They use, and I got one posted on my wall here because I got all kind of religious uh, paraphernalia surrounding me here. Uh, I'll just turn off my blur. You can, well, you can't really see it, but this is, that's a bridge to total freedom over there. And uh, you could probably pull this up on uh, Google or something. And it's a it's a very complicated chart that shows you beings on a tone scale measurement, unit of measurement, uh, based on emotional states, all the way up to emotion, uh, spiritual freedom. Uh, they measure your tone level to determine how high or low you are, how yeah. or spiritually free you are. And there's certain somatics or rather uh, symptoms, including happiness and freedom that go with the stages down to apathy, which is really at the very bottom. Even hatred is above apathy in this meter. And so uh, by measuring your state through the electrostatometer, they can determine uh, how far up they need to keep processing you. So there's a couple of interesting. Um, Can you just buy one of those things or they keep those on lockdown? You can. You go on eBay and you type in e-meter, you'll yeah. see like the Mark 8. They're not to be sold. They're not supposed to be sold. Okay. Uh, but Scientology is not, doesn't have a governmental law protecting that, so you can go on there and buy it. <laughs> yeah. 800 to $1,000, $1,100 or more, give or take. Like, I, I can't remember how high the prices are now. They probably even sell them for like 3000 for you know direct to Scientologists. So, uh couple other things about the process of auditing uh, regarding how that path goes through your hand. The whole theory is when you're holding these cans, they're going to be talking you through different questions. If they say, bring up, tell us about a time when your mother was mean. They want to hear about the most, the first thing that pops in your head is probably going to be the most painful thing. They want to flatten this button, meaning take away the, this power that it's, it's draining from you by releasing the, uh, uh, the charge that exists within this memory. So the way that they're going to do it is when I say, well, there was a time when I was, I came home from school and I had a homework assignment that was filled out by me and another classmate and it was nice handwriting on it. My mom said, I know that's not your handwriting because you can't write good. And that hurt my feelings. Oh, great. Let's run that one. 
So tell me about it again. So now the auditor, which an auditor means listener, is going to instruct the person to go over this memory and retell them over and over and over. And what happens is every time you go back to that memory and you retell that story, you reframe it to yourself. You have another realization. You recover another lost bit and you recontextualize it. You bring understanding and, and, and wisdom to the situation uh, that you hadn't considered since it happened. And in the yes. process, you free yourself of hangups and of uh, depression and things that can exist within that charge. So when the signal goes in one hand and it goes up to the head and then they're asking me this question and now I'm thinking about my mom and this thing that happened, this is, uh, the theory is that thoughts have mass. Their matter and energy come together and it creates mass and that mass blocks the current, at least a portion of it, depending on how traumatic and how much charge is in that mass, which will show in the differential read, whether you have you're a lot of energy loss or we're having a little bit of a problem there. And so by going over the story, because this is a live meter that's showing us whenever they're having a thought twitch, uh, by going over it over and over, you come to grips with it. It doesn't hold any charge for you. And then now we have what's called a floating needle. And then they're like, great, process done. And they move on to the next thing. And they process you like that over and over. Yeah, so it's just like... A blunt way to say it is like a type of shock therapy almost. But it's well, not even shocking. It's just, it's just, you, scanning. you don't, like even, it's just even, yeah. Don't feel the current. It is so, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Voltage, you don't even know it's really happening. Uh, but more than any of that, it's, it's being used as kind of insight into your the therapy. I literally yeah. did therapy like this without everything hooked up to me, but I did, I did a therapy where I had to retell it and she would ask me different questions. She would make me focus on like, different things in the room so that the main thing just wasn't that big of a deal. And it was like a whole picture instead of that one scan of just my dad yelling at me or whatever it was. Exactly. And in Dianetics, it's basically a similar thing. They have the processes without an e-meter. So Scientology incorporates the e-meter. Dianetics is that field of study that comes just before. Uh, Dianetics means uh, through the mind and Scientology is through the spirit. And so once you've worked your way up the, to the lower half of this chart uh, through using Dianetics and the processing they have, eventually you attain a state called clear. Once you reach clear, then uh, you start to go into your OT levels, the operating Phaeton levels. And uh, so there's eight additional levels there. And each of those is designed to clear you on one of the eight dynamics. They uh, handle people on the basis of your intermediate most dynamic, your second with your, uh, your partner, for instance, your third with your family, then with your neighboring community, and then like with your country, and then as a global citizen, as a human being, as a spirit. By the time you're to the eighth dynamic, you're at the God dynamic. And so on each of these dynamics, we're looking, okay, where is there a problem where have you had a problem with society or with your mother or with religion? And ultimately it's to give you this freedom. So that way you can be like Tom Cruise jumping on a sofa, <laughs> electrifying Oprah. Yeah. If everything works yeah. out. So, I mean, I was going to ask about Tom Cruise because like I've read some stories, obviously it's the media. So like, who knows, but like he wasn't the best husband. He seemed to be very controlling. Didn't let her do anything, all that kind of stuff. So like, how does 
being the best self or whatever tie into that? Because wouldn't that mean you couldn't move to the next level? Yeah. So this is where I did have some of the hangups and why I ended up leaving Scientology because there is a little bit of, and I say a little bit, but there might be a bit more than that, of a tendency toward controlling uh, versus the compassionate routes. So with like Christianity, the healing forgiveness, forgiveness process, the developmental process, it's a lot softer, more compassionate compared to this more, uh, uh, I want to say military, matil- uh, what's the word we're looking for? Yeah, even just like going to like talking about the auditing and it's just like all these questions that are, could be very intrusive. So that may be how you start reacting to people. And, you know, that's a controlling way too, almost like. Well, they do get you in that way. So it, it's uh, consensual. So it's fine or whatever, like you're there willingly and all that. And like the whole point is to go deep with them. But uh, yeah. Well, they get, there is a fun logic that is helpful. I think for psychological development that, that I learned from there and that's this aspect where when you have overt and covert withholds, this is something they specialize in, uh, where an overt withhold would be I stole uh, or I slapped a man on the face. Okay, I had a fight with somebody. And um, let's see, I want to make sure I get these right. Uh, and so you've done something wrong to somebody uh, outwardly. Uh, and then a covert withhold would be like if you stole some money from the till of your your business. So say you're a cash register person, you took some, you didn't tell anybody, and now you're withholding a secretly. So with the with the withholds, when somebody is withholding, they have a tendency then to go and uh, judge and criticize people more. So somebody, for instance, who has a covert withhold, who takes from their boss is going to be more likely to then start kind of justifying it subconsciously and saying, well, he doesn't pay me enough. They can't treat me like this. They deserve everything they get. This place is a criminal. And they might start going around slandering the place. And this is something that guilty people do is they start to, you know, throw the stones. They start to justify their victim mentality in a certain way. And so there's some of these sorts of behaviors that um, psychologically are more telling. So, you know, their exploration of our consciousness doesn't necessarily, didn't necessarily lead to a more suspicious attitude towards other people. In fact, having a suspicious attitude towards other people might make me more inclined to wonder what's wrong with me. And I also, yeah. I also tie that in with uh, the first book of Romans, where it uh, talks about, you know, you judge others, um, but don't you know you're going to be judged for the same things? And mm-hmm. I remember thinking how that could be true and not true. And that's another useful skill that they teach you. How is this true? How is it not true? In order so you can always see perspectives. And when I'm thinking about that, when's the time that I would judge somebody? And then how could I not be guilty of that? And then if you think long and hard enough about it, whether you did it once upon a time, and that's why you're judging people, that might be, but you might just about to be to do it. For instance, if uh, I'm going to work and I start honking at somebody in front of me because they're going too slow, on my way home, guess what? Someone's going to be honking at me. If somebody cuts me off on my way to work and I don't honk because it's not going to help and I'm doing that compassionate thing to maintain peace, guess what? I'm going to find myself cutting somebody off against my will, maybe because I have to later on, and nobody's going to honk at me. So it's kind of like, yeah, it's karma. What goes around comes around. You get what you give. And you judge, and you'll be judged. And you condemn, you'll be condemned. Judge not, and you will not be judged. And condemn not, and you will not be condemned. The interesting part I'm picking up about Scientology is like, you haven't 
you haven't mentioned God yet. So, like, is there, like, a God in Scientology? Well, and, like, become God. That's, yeah, that's yeah. the crux of it. Yes. Yeah. So, when you get up to the eighth dynamic, which yeah, is the yeah. God dynamic, that is where the Scientologists who forked over hundreds of thousands of dollars have it revealed to them that yeah. source, when they change the word source, is now L. Ron Hubbard. And yeah. you meet and connect with, oh, now he's been dead since the 80s. So you meet and you connect with him as source spiritually and the hierarchy of uh, of his leadership, apparently, uh, presumably. Uh, spiritually, you become theirs. Yeah. And okay. I, can, I can correlate this with some other schools of thought, which kind of have a similar sort of. Sure. Like a lot of this sounds like similar stuff from other religions except for this one kind of part here and then the other big question is so if there is not like your typical theist type god or you know many theists or whatever that created the universe do the scientologists kind of have an explanation for the origin of us so we don't know what happens if you die kind of or you know you reach a certain level um like yeah what's the origin of the universe to them so, and I have to remember because in the basic books, which is a series of, I think, 14 or 15 books, maybe that L. Ron Hubbard wrote, which is the initial well, book. Christianity only has one Bible. So you're, you're up on them. Yeah. With how many books though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, to be fair, a Bible is a collection of books. To oh, like dang so it. If, yeah. <laughs> if they put it all into one volume, they might be their Bible. Uh, but, <laughs> um, but they, Basically, one of their uh, books is called The History of Man. And uh, there's a lot he doesn't reveal, L. Ron Hubbard, in the initial stages that later in the OT levels, like OT3 and uh, the Ring of Fire stage, uh, where uh, the true origins of the universe are kind of disclosed, more or less. And uh, this space drama uh, is unfolded, where they reveal that... uh, the Luciferians, this is who they're waiting for in, in fact, and whether they've pointed that or not, they are waiting for these alien beings who are Luciferians to come down, who are part of a part of the universe co- uh, called the uh, Galactic Confederation. And they oppose another part of the universe known as the Markavian Confederacy. And that's where Jesus is at. Jesus is part of the Markavian Confederacy. And by the way, according to the Seventh-day Adventist, Jesus and the New Jerusalem are located in the Crab Nebula, which is that center star of Orion's belt, which SETI claims to have pointed uh, a microphone at and gotten the sounds of chariots and things from. So just as a side note. So there is a space battle happening in the situation. I'm going to disclose one more thing real quick. Uh, I was walking by one of the executives' desk one day uh, in the org. It was unoccupied. Nobody was at their desk. And she had a fax uh, on her desk and the fax was from Uplines and it was explaining an explanation that she needed to give to somebody else. And in that explanation, apparently the issue was regarding Jesus. And that explanation said that they are, that Jesus was a pedophile and uh, among other things. So this is why they internally were at enmity with Christ at, you know, so this again was on an executive's desk. They were high level. I was not supposed to see it. And, uh, but this is what they're, what they're telling people. Yeah. So they are, they are anti-Christ in that sense. And, um, and they are pro-Lucif, the pro-Luciferians. 
so they're just waiting for that moment to happen. They're trying to seed the whole world with their ideal orgs, which their orgs are organizations or their churches, is what they call them. And uh, they've sought to make them all ideal. And an ideal org was a concept that L. Ron Hubbard had uh, developed and fleshed out before he died of what an org could look like if it was perfectly possible, which at that time it wasn't. And then, uh, so moving forward, now it's become possible. Now in Clearwater, we have a building called the Superpowers Building. And it's full of all these amazing contraptions, which are designed to free the Thetan from the body and give him uh, an autonomy, including ones that spin you around in circles and they do this and they do this and that to you. And they're very high level activities that cost a lot of money to do. And just, uh, you know, the information is probably available in the dark web that I haven't seen, you know, uh, but aside of what they do show you and they advertise, it's to promote the next stages to your freedom. You mentioned a lot of stuff like about Scientology. I'm finding this very fascinating. But so you explain like the aliens going back and forth and there's this galactic concept, but he really just doesn't describe like the origins of the universe. Or is it like Big Bang or just kind of they just leave it? I, I'm actually a little unclear in my head right exactly what sure. we're going to do. The origin story involving uh, how man started, like there was these cavemen on Earth and then these thetans, these uh, body thetans, uh, which were uh, captured from other other planets. They're put over here in a, in a uh, volcano. And then they became somehow these evil spirits, which became like spiritual leeches called body thetans. And they would attach onto these cavemen and so there is this connection between how Xenu, uh, the uh, ancient evil ruler, imprisoned these beings and then put them on Earth, and then how they came to attach themselves to, to cavemen. Um, so I'm a little uh, unclear to the Scientological uh, uh, origin story. I do have more insight, however, into the origin story according to some of the sources that L. Ron Hubbard himself would have researched. Yeah, yeah. I, he baptized himself uh, in the name of Lucifer, apparently, uh, with Jack Parsons uh, into the OTO, which was Aleister Crowley's um, uh, School of Black Magic. And so, um, but one thing that I've come to learn in all of my studies of Steiner and of Theosophy and Anthroposophy is uh is just in which is connected with uh you know the oto freemasonry spiritual science and then theosophy and all these other spiritual scientific uh there's people who were doing it a good way and then there was dark magicians and uh in their school of thoughts they tend to overlap in how they clairvoyantly perceive the origins of the universe and so if we're looking at the universe or the earth in terms of the starting from scratch the origin story is essentially that there was three spheres or um, uh, planetary stages, but before this one in particular, and three after that can be perceived clairvoyantly. Right. And the ones in the three before, starting with the first one, which is called Old Saturn, which was a state of, of being which is characterized only by warmth. Beings who were still in their, and this is going to get really complicated, beings who were still yeah. in their. A uh, human state, which, by the way, we have entered into a human state and we are going to evolve past this. We were born to become angels, angels of the 10th rank. Uh, and this is according to multiple sources. 
I've also perceived my grandmother be, become an angel too. Um, so we're made a little lower than the angels, but we're born to develop into the next rung uh, uh, generation of them. So, so does that tie into reincarnation in any way, or is it completely separate because you're moving into like an angel or angelic state? Yeah, our reincarnation states that have been happening essentially since uh, Lemuria, when our bodies started to get physically dense enough for them to uh, to die and have to, and because before a certain state, before we had become densified, our our bodies just maintained, and then it was through this calcification that they became subject to things like death, and then therefore reincarnation. Um, so. And I, I will address what you're saying. I think I'm going to go back a little bit. So with the old Saturn stage, we had beings who were in their human stage going into this old Saturn stage characterized by just warmth. There wasn't anything to see. It was just darkness and warmth. And through their presence, they projected a reflection of themselves into that material, into that substance, which became the rudimentary organs of what we have today in our physical body. The next stage was what was called the uh, the old sun state. And so all of a sudden light was added to this. And, uh, and so now we started to see, we started to see a being come from that rudimentary uh, reflection, started to evolve into this rudiments of a human, human being. And so uh, different other characteristics were added uh, to this, uh, particularly the etheric body, the life body, which added energy flows. And this is, uh, uh, this corresponds with the life energy of plants, for instance. And then we have the, uh, the next stage, which was known as old moon. So many more millions of years later, uh, the earth went through what was called the Manvantara, which is what the Sanskrit of the Hindus call this, this period of silence and stillness between the spheres. And then we were endowed with souls and old moon. And in that time, we had animals on earth in a certain way. We had plants that were manifesting in a certain way, still very spiritual. And now man was being endowed, endowed with a soul. And then the next stage was the earth evolution. And that is compartmentalized in two phases called Mars and Mercury. And now we're in the Mercury stage. In the first part of Mars, we had what were called, uh, and I'm sorry, I know this is boring, uh, it's probably the most boring part of all this, but it's so foundational to like the timeline and understanding all the other things. Um, we had the uh, Polarian, the Hyperborean, uh, uh, Hyperborean, Polarian. Uh, we had the Lemurian and the Atlantean peoples or phases of being. Now, when we were in our Lemurian stage, we were actually reptilian-like, okay? So what? here's one of the main things about how everything came to be. The whole earth around us is developing around man. So what all animals, for instance, came off of man. So here is this man being, and as he purged off the characteristics of these lower ant forms, as he moved it out of them and, and developed past it, the actual ant species was born. And as the anteater in him became purged through his development, then the anteaters went... Now, who, what was occupying these group souls of these animals were beings, humanoid beings, who could not keep incarnating with man's evolution because they would not develop, because they were underdeveloped, because they were backward in their development. They went on to become these animals. So those are old people. 
for instance, the when you go to the zoo and you see a gorilla and you're like, man, there's a person in there. That person, that was a person back in Atlantis. That person could not continue with man's evolution according to these teachings. And so he is stuck in the the, the special line of gorillas. So in a sense, we have the whole animal kingdom in us. It is us. It's part of us. It's come from us. And so there is that connection. And it also points to reincarnation. And So then global- it's not because they didn't do anything or they like made a mistake in a past life or whatever. It's just because they couldn't continue on. Well, it could be, it, I would say it was a result of sinfulness. I mean, the, what is sin to miss the mark? You know, if they missed the mark, if they weren't able to maintain pace with the evolution of man, you know, what's the highest calling they had was to become an angel. So if they took a exit before then, something went wrong. You see, so in that sense, I would I would say that there was, you know, they might not be judged as such. Like we're not condemning the animals. Oh, you sinful people. Um, but, you know, they couldn't carry on to the full length of our human's purpose. It's interesting in how like most religions too, um, there's like a clear sign of uh, dominion over animals that we are kind of given. Like, yeah, okay, so we've evolved past them, like it's okay to eat them now you know you can kind of do stuff like that or this is still under the basis of scientology this is under the basis of what is known as theosophy and anthroposophy these are subjects that uh of spiritual science that um l ron hubbard was studying interesting when i got into that study later on i came to realize that a lot of what was taught in scientology was a verbatim some of it just seemed like interesting plagiarism because it was him rebranding all of spiritual science, calling it Scientology, and saying the quickest way to make money is to create a religion. Yeah, and- yeah. It, <laughs> it's so funny. Like, I, I, I have another podcast where I just read people's short stories, and it's usually world building, and they're talking about how this planet was created and how – and, like, if I read that on one of my stories, I'd be like, that's the best story I've read in a long time, like – I like this element of it. Well, I don't quite get that a- a certain aspect, but like, it's some very cool world world building for sure. How he's done, kind of. So I'm gonna just clue you in. I'm wearing a shirt. This says Dr. Rudolf Steiner, and I'll do you one better, and I'll show you his picture. Nice. Okay. Okay. He died in the '80s. If you could see my office, I got pictures of him all over, not just Perry Lake. So, and, like, is that paraphernalia stuff, or are you, like, a huge fan? I'm a, I'm a huge fan of... You're, like, a Scientologist, like, still in the religion. I'm not a Scientologist, and Rudolf Steiner wasn't a Scientologist. Oh, right, uh, okay, yeah. Right. didn't exist until uh, the 1950s, uh, when Dianetics Scientology came around. Steiner died in 1925, lived from uh, 1861 to 1925, and he founded something called Anthroposophy, which is basically Christian theosophy. And theosophy was basically a Western spiritual science based out of Hinduism and Buddhism. And the spiritual scientific aspect relates to the mystery schools that have always been existed. So the ancient Egyptian mystery schools, Babylonian, etc. And so even Jesus, he talked in parables only, lest anyone should understand, you know, and be converted. He would speak clearly to the disciples privately, though. So this is basically in alignment with that private dialogue that was given like from Hermes, Trismegistus, or was taught to the initiates, the Christian initiates, like the Rosicrucians and people like that. And so at some point that knowledge, which was always meant to be kept secret and kept from the general population, you know, don't cast your pearls before swine, 
uh, and was really withheld, not because it was meant to be withheld, like the good people with knowledge are trying to withhold it from others, but it's because there's so much powerful knowledge that if evil people get a hold of this knowledge, they can do a lot of evil with it. And I'll give you some examples. Hopefully you don't have any evil listeners who are going to use it. Um, and so as a result of that compromised knowledge, there's a mixed understanding. So now people are like, oh, I'm in the crystal balls and I'm doing this and that. And a lot of people have these one-off sides of esoteric occultism, um, of, of this higher spirituality that they are looking at materialistically and they're using for these purposes that are something other than receiving Christ or finding your higher self, attaining eternal life, which is the whole purpose of the sacred spiritual science. So um, as a result of all that compromise, Rudolf Steiner came along. He's got uh, almost 300 books to his name, 256 books to his name. And um, 30 he wrote. The rest were compilations of the over 6,000 lectures that he gave, which were a stenographer, shorthand note taker for all of them. So they're all, uh, this is a lot of like, I've, and I've been listening. And so these lectures, which you can access through RudolfSteinerAudio.com, or you can get it rudolfsteinerpress.com you can find a lot of the audiobooks uh they're all free at that rudolfsteineraudio.com uh but if you go on youtube you find a lot of content it's really interesting and that's how i found steiner uh i actually had a prayer one night and i said i've used the law of attraction uh to attract everything i wanted in life now i've been to close to 60 countries that was one thing i wanted to do as i wanted to travel there's a lot of experiences that i wanted to have and i was using the law of attraction in terms of knowing how to pray effectively and my prayers are coming true, but I didn't know how to pray using the law of attraction to assist in my spiritual development. And so one night when I was going to sleep, I'm kind of detouring a little bit because all of this kind of goes together. Uh, I, pr- I formulated a visualization and the visualization was of me in my full day waking consciousness, walking down a sidewalk and in it, I would occasionally look off into the spiritual world, like off into the ditch. I would like look into a window into the spiritual world in the back on the sidewalk. And the visualization was meant to encapsulate being in the spirit world while still being in the physical body. And uh, a couple of weeks later, I ended up coming across How to Know Higher Worlds by Rudolf Steiner. And this book popped up online and I was doing a search for the kingdom of heaven as accessible interdimensional reality. I was really trying to like composite my feelings together. I wanted it to be Christian, but scientific, and I wanted it to get me into other worlds, you know, and this whole thing. So when I found this book, I immediately knew that I would know within an instant of hearing it, whether it was going to be the right path for me. And it, it was, I started listening and it just never stopped making sense. And so now it's been um, nine. Well, it was, yeah, 2014 when I found Steiner. So nine years plus since I found them. And, uh, and I've spent sometimes, you know, 40, 50 plus hours a week listening to Steiner. Uh, I listen to his books and read his books. I have a huge collection of his books and I study them. And it's really a study of uh, comparative religion. And it goes down the history of every world religion and all of their esoteric origins. And you see why he's considered such a profound teacher because he's brought all that knowledge to light that you know, it's lost or hidden for most people. And that's why L. Ron Hubbard revealing all that knowledge and everything, uh, you know, sparked so much interest because it was like lost knowledge. Um, do you guys have a question? I mean, I feel like I have so many. I, yeah. 
Okay, so you quote the Bible a lot, mm. but I feel like there are competing facts about each thing. So yeah, how do yeah. you, why quote the Bible? Why bother? Well, so for me, I am partial to the Bible because I do believe in the Bible. I believe, but on the other hand, like there's some people who say, I only believe in the Bible and there's no other scriptures and everything can be understood simply with the Bible. You need nothing else. But if you recall, the Bible says that of Jesus's miracles, that if everything were written that he had done, the whole world could not contain the books that would need to be written. So when we look in terms of, I only want this, or I don't want to look at the Gnostic scriptures, or I don't want to look at anything from any other religion from any time, we're like uh, discounting a lot. The fact is the Christ worked, has always been here. And so he's been working at different times and different ways before it, he incarnated in, uh, in Christ. And in those different ways and times, different religions were formed because what was needed for those people in those times was different. And so things look different uh, in each of these religions. And it's not that there's a contradiction. There's actually a harmony between them. And so. That's so interesting. Okay. So then. Then in that, like using that logic, what would God have been in Genesis and then Exodus and then Leviticus? And like, what is he just like a different carnation every time? So, so this does get down in, a little bit into the nitty gritty about, for instance, Jehovah, what we called God in the Old Testament, who was seen as a moon God at that time. And, um, Actually, I was just watching this as a side note. I was watching the uh, the ceremony for the Mormons, and it was explaining to them how that God sent down Jehovah and Michael. And Jehovah was uh, uh, in, and then they were to face Lucifer. And so, when we hear about uh, the manifestation of Jehovah and uh, versus what would later manifest as uh, as Christ. We see that Jehovah was a reflection of this countenance of God, and it was a forerunner of what would be, but there's still uh, a harmony between God and these different forms. Um, trying to think of something very helpful to say with regard to God and Jehovah form, but it's eluding me right now. So uh, with that said, yeah, there was different names at different times, and it all it all comes together in the, in the story of Christ. The only exception that I can find, religiously speaking, is uh, when I'm reading the Quran and I see, kill the Christians or kill the Jews. I don't know anything about that. I don't know about that. But Mohammedism and Arabism and all of that, uh, that has uh, some roots in uh, materialism and uh, in, in dark things, too. So um, we pull a lot, for instance, when we're talking in anthroposophical circles, uh, from terminology used from all the world religions, including Zoroastrianism. And Zoroastrianism is one of the world's oldest religions. It's now still uh, practiced by the Parsis. Um, and it was uh, a Persian um, uh, spiritual uh, scientific kind of teaching. And in it, you hear of uh, uh, Zoroaster and uh, the uh, god Ormuzd and the devil Araman. And uh, Ahura Mazda, you know, we have Mazda the car, and then we got 
uh, Zoroaster, who was their prophet, and then we have Araman, who was the devil form. So when we understand the concepts of Lucifer and Araman, this is where things get really esoteric. These beings are real beings. Uh, they have physical formats. They existed, but they're also spirits, and they're pervasive, and they're pervading, and they have an influence on this physical world. The influences of Lucifer affect our ego. And one hand, Lucifer and Araman, we got to remember that Lucifer and the devil are not the same being. And a lot of times, most of the time, they're conflated. People think they're the same one and they're not. And so Lucifer is leading us off towards a type of egotism, while Araman is leading us off into a type of materialism. They're both producing obstacles for us, but they also both have a purpose, which is why they are here in the first place. So the Luciferian uh, nature or impulse is that which seeks to give us a, a freedom, causes us to want to be free, for instance, as independent beings uh, who think uh, independently. And on the extreme, they want to run away with themselves and into the spiritual world and be completely autonomous spiritual beings, essentially, almost, you know, in, in that direction. Now, we have a middle pillar, the Christ pillar. And this is a, a balancing pillar. So in a lot of esoteric art, you're going to see three pillars. And when you see threes, you can always know there's this balancing between the higher spiritual intellectual pursuits with its shadow side. And then this physical world, which we have by way of Araman and its negative side. What might be turned to? What's that? Would that be the same as like the Father, Son, Holy Spirit? Uh, this would be a different kind of trinity in terms of uh, how it would how we would look at it diagrammatically on this realm. So um, I wouldn't compare uh, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit to to this what I'm mentioning. Um, to attain unto the Father, Son, Holy Spirit would be to you know have balance of this and then deal oh, okay. to the Christ to take the Father. Um, so these beings, Arman, gives us materiality. Things are so dense, we're in the state of Maya. You know, if you heard Maya, like it's an illusion. You know, this is what the Hindus called the physical world. And there's this veil, the veil of Isis, you know. And we are in this world that seems like it's dead, inert, physical materiality. If you've ever done a psychedelic, if you've ever meditated into other states of consciousness, and you start to see the alivening impulses and things, you start to see things morph and become alive, spiritual beings that resound with words in your mind and, uh, and are actually living, then you'll see that what most of us perceive as a result of our fallen state is really a corpse. And we're living in a dead world. And to the degree that we don't bring the spirit back into everything, do we die with this world? And so our ignorance, most people don't. I was going to ask if you've ever done acid or mushrooms and what your thoughts are as far as that ties into the religious or the spiritual realm. This is my old license plate, which is still my license plate on my, my nice. car. Here. For so, the listeners, it yeah. says uh, DMT in me. <laughs> yeah, we've yeah, wanted to try that one, but we haven't dabbled yet. Okay, so dimethyltryptamine is the most powerful psychedelic known to man also known as the spirit molecule, maybe see DNT, the spirit molecule, the book written by uh, Dr. Rick Strassman. Yeah. And this was kind of an interesting project for me because for me, this license plate, it rhymes DN, DMT and me, and it adds to 33 in Pythagorean numerology. Mm. And what we, have, what we have here, if we think of the DNT as the spirit molecule, 
I say this honest Abe figure is our Christ archetypal figure. This Chicago skyline here represents perhaps the kingdom of heaven. And that's right behind the word DMT. Behind the word in is a windmill kind of blowing, moving this, the, uh, the Christ or the kingdom of heaven in. And what is this? It's a temple building. Your body's a temple. So for me, it's wow. the spirit in me. Kingdom of heaven in me, Christ in me, spirit molecule. You're, so you're a profoundly deep individual. Yeah, it's incredible. I, like, I feel like, I feel like you have answers to questions that I've had in my head, but I don't know how to get it out. And like, I, when you had said things like, when you ask too big of questions or it doesn't fit in the ideology, so they just kind of brush past it. And like, I feel like that's the biggest thing I've struggled with as far as religion, because I have so many pastors in my life. I have so many like spiritual, no, not religious figures or religious leaders and and I just like, they can't answer any of these questions. They they can't even ask these questions. Yeah. And it was so interesting. interesting. It would be their, their retirement statement to ask these questions. Yeah. Uh, because they, they do seem so fundamental that to actually hear an answer to a lot of these things is shocking because we've had to gloss over so many big unknowns until you die, you know? Yeah. So when you get sources like, Rudolf Steiner, for instance, and there's many other people who I think are, you know, in alignment with the Christian values who are authentic, clairvoyant, spiritual, uh, biblically aligned uh, teachers who bring us this knowledge. As a matter of fact, the teachings themselves cause people to become clairvoyant. So in the very beginning of How to Know Higher Worlds, Rudolf Steiner explains that just by listening, just by reading this, and going over this content, you become aware of little things. You start to get the answers to little known, queer little things in life that have never had uh, an acceptable or fulfilling answer. And you can find that uh, in spiritual science. Yeah, but but like, why why is that right? Why is that the one so, that everyone believe? Well, so the big thing is, if we are looking for the truth, we want to have an experience with the truth as much as possible which means we need to find a path where this is an experiential reality, which means we don't want another pastor who's going to say, you'll find out when you die, but we want somebody who's going to say, it's possible for you to experience these things. Now the kingdom of heaven is at hand and it's your job. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all things will be added unto you. Instead we say, I'll seek that when I die. Mm. And we're all been tricked out of what you're born here to do, which is, hurry up and start studying, get knowledge, get understanding and get wisdom. Okay. So um, this information uh, is, uh, it's important that uh, people start to ask the hard questions. If you uh, ask and you shall receive, knock and you, you shall find, you know, seeking you shall find, you know, and don't stop looking until you find. And so that's how I got my way down to this path of discovering this guy named Rudolf Steiner. Um, because I needed actual answers. So with his, so getting to the, the, the promise, I more or less indicated that you yourself can have this experience of going to these other dimensions and experiencing these things all naturally, completely sober, uh, at, more or less at any time. And depending on your aptitude and your practice, uh, this is information that's given in How to Know Higher Worlds among other, all of his, the rest of his books. For me, every it's, book is a book of initiation. Yeah, it, it's interesting, like just saying, going to another realm or dimension or whatever and doing 
DMT or doing uh, mushrooms or acid or whatever, you know when you're going to have a bad trip. It, like if you had a bad work week, you don't want to be doing that stuff. And that like aligns you in that kind of dimension where if, yeah, if you're, you know, Zen and one with yourself and then you do it, now you've just aligned yourself with the, the good God or the good entity or whatever we're, we're labeling it. Well, and if you're known by your fruits, that would count in the spiritual realm as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah so so fascinating man (laughs) i feel like yeah i'm gonna give you guys a a little uh rundown of how a person comes to see clear learning before i do that let me give you the taster and explain what happened to me and why this is amazing i had these experiences with dmt i've seen all everything i could see in all different realms and all different ways for many years but I never realized that those were parts of the kingdom of heaven. I thought those are my psychedelic experiences. Those are some random visions that happen to me. At various points, I've had spiritual beings come to me and I've had experiences. I don't know how it happened. It went away, never happened again. Don't know how to repeat it. And, and I said, you know what? I need to learn how to do this consciously. Otherwise, I'm always going to be at effect of whether this, and it, when you die, you can't, you know, have DMT. So you need to make yourself into the spiritual being. So when I found his work and the meditation and I had my first breakthrough, I'll actually just show you. I did a meditation on a plant, which he recommends doing. And you're using a plant because a plant has the certain astral components as opposed to a rock, which is missing certain astral components, having only others. And through your meditation, through the steps he gives you, you will intensify this astral light and you use this as a means of Devakan, which is what the Sanskrit calls heaven. For a seventh heaven, the other seven rungs of Devakan. Uh, the highest rung of heaven or Devakan is where the highest saints and masters are. And the lowest rung are where the archetypes of the physical objects around us, where they are being projected in the physical reality from, including plant spirits, nature spirits. I didn't used to believe in those in particular. I didn't believe in nature spirits. I didn't believe in many of that because I thought it was just like fantasy stuff and it's not Christian and what. Well, I did this meditation on a plant as per Steyer's instruction. I was in my office, I was doing IT support, and I said, I'm, I was on lunch break, and I was listening to him in my car, and he said, if you're not having this experience, it's because you're not doing the meditation, and I had actually stopped meditating uh, before I found Steiner, because I was getting up at four in the morning in my closet, in the dark, meditating, and at most, I would see what was later, I would hear called the dark Krishna, which is this purplish, cloudy ring, which was coming, and it was this whole thing. And I just felt like, okay, that's neat, but it wasn't getting me anywhere. So I said, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. So I'm going to stop meditating until I can find new meditative instructions that differ from what I'm doing that are going to get me something different. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. In that process, I found How to Know Higher Worlds. And after listening to that book three times over in my car, a little bit every day, I got to this point where he's saying this thing, you're not doing the meditation. And I said, yeah, you know, I think I got enough of the pieces together. I've done them independently where I can try to do them all at once and see if I get something at this point. I felt ready. So I went back to my office, which as an IT guy, I had a locked room. And I also had the possibility of staying in there after everybody in the company left. And they could close it up and I could stay in there all night. And so I said, I'm not going to get up from my desk as I looked at this plant on my desk until I attain the end phenomena, which a lot of these terminologies I'm using, I'm, I've actually gotten from Scientology. So you know, if I told you how many of them, you'd be surprised, but it's very useful, Scientologies, as it's called. Um, so I go through this process of basically stopping my thinking. And a few of the things that 
weird to note is, for instance, if you're looking at a dying plant, you're feeling the feelings that you feel when you see the moon coming up over the horizon. Or if it's a blossoming, a brand new plant uh, flowering, you feel the feelings that you feel when you see the sun coming up over the horizon. And among other things, other steps, you're kind of zoned in in a way where in, in emotionally positioned in a way where now your thoughts are at ease and stopped. And then at that point, things start happening. So I was able to get my thoughts to basically stop. I was, I ended up really just kind of like seeing it all as like being in a spider's web. You're not attached to anything, but you know, physically you're kind of floating and you're in the still state where your thoughts are like this. And in the process of doing this meditation, the plant began to transform in front of me. So the first thing that happened was the plant began to glow. I started to perceive what I would later identify as an astral light uh, that was emanating from this plant. And a pall, you know, a pall is kind of like a dark cloud or dark sort of pall came around it. So it was kind of like looking at a picture in the development room and you see the negative. And so as it got brighter, the room around it got darker and I was shifting into this other spectrum of light. And then this plant began to wave and then even appear to float it's right in front of me. Again, I'm completely sober. I'm just meditating, doing what I'm supposed to do. And I'm perceiving a plant in front of me. Medi- you know, it's moving and Which, growing. For growing. anybody who has not done acid or mushrooms, that's exactly what you would be seeing. Yeah. Like you're describing it's, it perfectly. And so I, I pulled away. I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I just altered perception using meditative skills. I mean, I'm on the right track. This may happen for me, you know, hmm. uh, because people spend 40, 50, 60 years meditating and they never, nothing ever happens to them. I'm married to an Indian guy. His Indian parents have been meditating, doing the Hatha yeah. yoga in their morning for their whole life. And, you know, nothing like this has happened. So it's, it takes correct information that does make a difference. Do you think that you have to do DMT to understand what to see to experience that? No. I don't, but for me, it was in an, in an initiatic sort of way. It was the clue in that this exists and you need to be looking for it. Um, like the Bible says, like, um, blessed is he who sees and believes, but even more blessed is he who doesn't see and who believes. Hmm. So for me, I saw and I believed, which was a matter of course, and would have been a great sin to have denied, forget of what I'd seen. Yeah. Like. A lot of man's problem is knowledge. You know, you go back to the Garden of Eden. It's the heavy burden of knowledge. Ignorance is bliss. Like, it it all comes together where the more you know might not be good for you. Simplicity sometimes is the best thing. But I was going to ask because, like, you've obviously done your research. But in the Bible, it kind of says, like, have faith, believe, and kind of carry on. And that's kind of what I was told when I was not given answers, where it's like, no, no, you just have enough faith. No, have more faith. You're just So like, do you feel like you don't have faith now that you've gone to every possible level to figure it out? Like, does that cheapen your eternity? Yeah, great question. So like the scriptures say, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And so if you only trust your pastor to uh, give you that kind of insight because you can't do your own research or you don't want to. You're going to be limited by what you experience as a result of only following that type of person. So I, whatever we got, however we got to that discussion, I just want to point that out. 
Where else were we? Interesting. I mean, it's been a pretty long episode, but I feel like I do kind of have a couple questions. One, Kate, so you had mentioned that Lucifer and the devil are not the same. Can you quickly make that distinguishment distinct? Distinguish those between. Can you differentiate those for me before I kind of go into this next question? Yes. So the the powers of uh, Lucifer and uh, and Satan are different. They have different uh, purposes. And uh, as I was kind of describing earlier, one is based in your intellectual uh, psychology of your ego, and one is based on the outward world. The one in the outward world that causes us to materialist uh, materialism, uh, materialistic uh, behaviors. That is the satanic aspect. And we find that manifested in technology. And what we have is the uh, technological subculture, which is developing. And uh, with the internet and advanced uh, artificial intelligence, this is ultimately, according to the prophecies, going to lead in about a thousand years from now to the manifestation of of Satan on Earth. Uh, So we are preparing the ground for that now. a couple thousand years before Jesus was here, according to prophecies, Lucifer actually manifested as a man in China. Uh, but again, other than uh, going to these specific manifestations, which will, which have and will occur, the themes of them and how they're characterized in the scriptures are just like that. The inner and the outer uh, obstacle bearers. Interesting. Okay. So if you're going, if you, okay. So if it's like God, Jesus, is the devil, does the devil have to be part of it? Like, is the devil, could somebody say that the devil is karma and necessary to the picture? And in that case, is it that bad? Or is it good without evil? Well, good. Yeah. So uh, according to, uh, all the teachings I can get my hands on, the denial of the devil's ex- existence is actually the biggest the biggest trick, but it's also how he has you the closest. When people monists, atheists, people who don't believe in the devil, and they only believe that in an allegorical sense of good and evil, um, that they don't realize that there's a, a present evil that is adversary that's actively working against them. Uh, they are susceptible to the games and the tricks that will deceive them. We have to be aware that the devil exists in order to uh, be privy to his actions and to f- fend them off. I think one of the most impactful things my my dad ever said to me was, uh, we're always in the end times when good men do nothing. Like, if you're not aware of the problem, you're not actively fighting end times. Like, that, this is how we end. Exactly. When good men do nothing... Evil uh, prospers, strong men create good times, good times create weak men, weak men create bad times. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So um, how do you you feel like, well, I mean, I watch a lot of conspiracy things. So there's all this stuff saying that certain concerts are rituals to the devil. And do you feel like that's true? And that's like another manifestation of things happening? I was just at a weekend concert in Amsterdam a couple of weeks ago. And mm-hmm. I was there with my niece. We took her on a cruise and she found out the weekend's going to be there in Amsterdam. We're there. And Uncle Robert, can you take me? 
And I said, child, I said, this is terrible. It's my dream come true to see the weekend in Amsterdam. Well, leading up to that, I saw some of the videos of how they're flashing like Satan in the background and all this. And I watched a a recording of the show we were going to watch. And I started to like, wow, there was this very deep occultic uh, narrative going on with these people coming out in white robes and then the city being blown up and fired down. They're out in red robes and there's this big metallic you know, humanoid deified and this big giant moon and the lunar forces, which are known to contain or be associated with evil impulses in the way that the songs were lined out with this whole dancing, this whole thing that was playing out throughout the show. It really did seem like I've come to destroy you, to take your soul to hell and to brainwash you down this devilish path, but really just spelled out kind of like a sinister agenda right in our face yeah. Um, but definitely, um, I mean, you can't deny when you see Madonna doing her thing or Beyonce, Beyonce Travis Scott, all, all well, and famous the, celebrities. Travis Scott. And yeah. the, like yeah. what would happen, like Travis Scott's the only one where people have actually died. And so when you die in that kind of a bubble of energy, what happens to you? Well, the thing is, the astral world experience where everybody died people who died who died at the Travis Scott thing it was really clear leading up to it and and things that were happening around it that that, uh, they have sort of a sacrificial attitude and that he really was sparring it on Um, and so the fact is we have multiple dimensions around us we have heavenly beings as well as evil beings around us and uh, what's happening in us is the most important thing because They can't really hurt us unless they can lead us astray with our thinking and making us do and go into evil things or good. So we have a lot of say if we can control our minds and what happens regarding all this invisible stuff that's around us until if at some point I describe or uh, talk into that part. So there is a spiritual experience. Now, are people, when they go to that concert, are they already into some aspect off the path in the spiritual sense and they're already in some part of hell? in another realm that runs concurrent, you know, do they die in that sense? Are they really worshiping, you know, in hell with everybody and they don't even know because they can't see into that realm. So when they die and then they die as a sacrifice. And, and so I consider and it, that kind of like just, you know, we talked briefly about like the prosperity gospel and like the power of thinking. And if you're thinking negatively and it doesn't necessarily even matter if there is or isn't, some actual entity behind it, man. Like bad things are happening there. Yeah, if you law of attraction, yeah, right. Um, some of the spiritual scientific thinking that I'm talking about would actually point to the idea. For instance, how do we get thoughts? What are thoughts? Thoughts actually think us, and when a thought crosses your head, it's actually a sign as a footprint of a spirit passing by you. A thought is a spirit, and it's alive, hmm. and when it passes through you. Its footprint, so to speak, like it would be in the mud, is the thought, is the cognition. Yeah. Like you can't control your thoughts, but I can control my arm, but I can't control my thoughts. Okay. Well, I I think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But. Oh, I have. Okay. Obviously, I can start to think about, I'm going to think about this blue curtain in front of me, blah, 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 blah. Boom. I just thought about murder for some reason. (laughs) Okay. What about this? Because I have people in my life who are like, hmm, God told me that you should have a baby we're not having kids but like god told me that you kind of sounds to me like you want me to have a baby not god like 
is that controlling your thoughts? Is that letting your thoughts control you? Like, how does that fall on? Or is that just like, I don't know, manipulation? Well, maybe they've actually believed it was God. How do you? So the discerning of the spirits in us is a really good, interesting question. In the old mm-hmm. days with Socrates, he had a daimon, um, not, not a demon. Later that the word demon would come off of that, but a daimon was considered a essentially a nature spirit and in between, between the gods and the dead. And what they would do is they would work the God's will into the works of the dead because the dead are working on us. That when you die, your soul, among other things, in its own development, will work on the earth, will work on plant development, uh, will work on the living. You know, our ancestors are helping us, guiding us, affecting what's happening. So this daimon was this intermediary spirit that he believed in, that he uh, gave uh, credit to for all of his knowledge and wisdom. And when somebody would come up to him, he would consult with the daimon, and he would, through uh, this system of communication, get answers. So do you have to phrase things in a yes or no format with the options? And then if he had complete stillness and peace in his skin and in his body, he knew that this was the spirit talking to him. And if he felt any distortions or pain or discomfort, and depending on his location, he would know what, you know, friends, should I go to this place tomorrow? And he consults. And it gets itch here. This don't go. You should stay back. So that daimon later, according to Steiner, really made the Greek people the most capable and able to understand the Christ. Because at the at Golgotha, the mystery of Golgotha, what this is, the Jesus dying, is that when he died, his in his blood hit the earth on the cross. His soul united with the earth, and Jesus, his the Christ became the soul of the earth, interpenetrating all everything that is. And he went into the heart of the earth uh, for three days. And it is said that a part of Adam, when he was created, was kept off of him, a part of his etheric body, which gave him independent thinking and willing. And those were held back. And so when Jesus who had this higher self, this higher nature of the etheric body of Adam within him, among other forms that had come together to create his incarnation. When he went into the earth, into the into the womb of the earth, he multiplied this being enough for everybody on the earth. So everybody now has this higher self, this higher nature, which cons- which was originally founded on the etheric portion of Adam. And like Jesus with the fish and loaves, he made enough for everybody. And that replaced that daimon that used to exist before the mystery of Golgotha. So this is a a mode of communication between uh, the Christ and man. Now, if a person's got prophetic ability, if they're communicating that way uh, with Christ, that's one thing. A lot of times, because we have a higher self, a lot of times people, you know, they they think, and in a, a certain way, according to the most esoteric teachings, your higher self is God. Uh, like the Jews say in Kabbalah, there is none else beside him. Um, your lower ego is not God. Uh, you know, Jesus, Jesus said, you say you yourself say you are gods, because it says in the Old Testament, Jesus said you are gods. Gods. And so a lot of people get hung up on that um, because they're like, well, there's only one God. But the Bible is actually a polytheistic book. The commandments say have no other God before me. It doesn't say there are no other gods. There's a hierarchy of angelic beings and forces that are putting this whole world together and they're working as messengers in order to form God's plan in the spiritual world here. 
And so what we call gods, okay, as these very evolved beings, like Jesus thought it was nothing, thought nothing to share a mind with God, okay? And neither should we. So as we get in harmony with the universal mind, you know, there's none else beside him. We're all one with God. So, so God is in us. I, oh my goodness, this is so interesting. Because so, God is in us. He is one yeah. with us. He is. Yeah. So in this sense, there's a legitimate case to be made for somebody believing that they're getting an inspiration from God. As a matter of fact, if it wasn't for our lower uh, egoistic desires pulling us away from that one thought process, that one voice that we hear in meditation that originates itself out of us during meditation, then uh, we would never have fallen in the first place. So it's because we are self-identified with ego. The Bible says be selfless. Why? Because when you're selfish, you pull yourself away from the unity and you make yourself a separate thing. No man is an island unto himself. So if you, uh, if you follow the religious tenets of most religions very closely, you'll see that it makes you more in harmony with everything that has that in it. And it's a matter of recognizing it. And that's the problem. Because if you don't recognize it on an individual basis, then you think it doesn't exist in anybody else. Because you can't see if somebody has attained into some sort of light. Like you said, it's by the fruits, you know. And so that can create some confusion. Do you feel like, like we were raised in religion. So I feel like I kind of already speak some of this language. And like, do you feel like you were, you had a leg up when you were born to a mom who wanted you to go to some church? Like, do you feel like you're just one level above somebody who has no idea what we're talking about? Well, the irony is perhaps in some way I underestimate what I gain through being put in those situations. My mom is not a very religious person at all. As a matter of fact, it was more of a matter of convenience of putting us in the church. But uh, my grandparents are religious, but not her. My brother, uh, he took a, a very different path in life, and uh, yet he was raised in very similar circumstances. I do think karmically, my characterological disposition, different factors did bring me into the incarnation where I had those experiences, which I did follow up on, and it was really helpful for me. Um, but in the same way, like with my brother right next to me, who went the completely different path and doesn't have anything to do with that. And, <clears throat> you know, motorcycles, this, that, and the other, which, you know, motorcycles, everybody loves motorcycles, but you know, what I'm saying. <laughs> um, you know, the, the bad stuff that is, I think it comes down to the individual, how ready they are to receive this kind of information. Some of that could be based in um, nurture. You know, I had a parent who kept me open-minded or I had a parent who told me there is no God and all the people are crazy. And then some of it is nature. Again, that characterological disposition where I'm automatically interested in the subject, like somebody's interested in football. I'm not into football. I'm into this subject. And just in the same way, I understand if somebody's not into the subject because I feel like I had, a, I, I had a question very early on and you kind of said addicted to church. And as as we've talked more, I feel like you're addicted to the knowledge of of all of this as opposed to more of like. I'm addicted to the community aspect and like oxytocin kick. Yeah. Yeah. At that time, I would say that I was becoming uh, more addicted to religion, spirituality, but the church experience at that time was really important for me. I was getting a lot from it. A lot has changed since then. 
And uh, now I more consider myself just obsessed with religion and spirituality. And, you know, we have political things. We have things like gag, gays against groomers, which are very important issues right now. So uh, in that sense, uh, I'm kind of addicted to all religion and spirituality um, in terms of comparative religion. Okay. I'm glad you brought up the gag thing because I have questions about that because I mean, in, I think it's Leviticus. I feel like it's like all over the old Testament. You cannot go to heaven if you're gay. Like, I don't mean, I should have got that verse before we did this, but what are your thoughts on that? Like, how do you, or, and I mean, like even in that last episode that we did, and by the way, it broke my heart when you said, I felt like I had just been born a dud. Because I know that so many people feel like that. And I feel like religion has made them feel like that. But how do you, like, how did you come from that to where you are now? And how do you justify that? And not maybe justify, but you know. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, like you said, it started out for me um, spending a lot of time after having various church experiences and then being young and then coming to realize I was gay and then you know, plugging that into all this religious thing. And then the output means, oh, man, this is this is where you go to hell. And so your option is you're going to be uh, alone, celibate alone, uh, or you got or you go to hell. And so that was a, a tough thing for me. And over many years, I was going over that and asking myself, uh, what is it about being gay itself that is the sin? And so much of this, I think, really comes down to the uh, the principles of lusting, for instance, is the first and foremost thing that I think gets overlooked, is that the sins that we cr- commit on that level, I think, are just as bad as anybody. And I think a lot of times when we look at gay people as uh, the sexual perverts and uh, they're doing a lot of stuff that we're all kind of doing on some level, on a lighter level. And so in that sense, I only uh, point that out because I hate for somebody to get in the weeds about, oh, those people are going to hell, but they forget to take care of themselves. Because Mm -hmm. for me, you know, for the things that I see wrong or that I think are, you know, hellbound activities, you know, and I'm considering my own behavior, you handle yourself if you're, you know, calm about this, you handle yourself with more compassion because, you know, step by step. Why am I like this? You know, am I going to sit here and just condemn myself with those stones? Well, you might spend a few years doing that. I spent a few years just hating myself about it. But you might go in and get knowledge and, and start to like look at the differences between, uh, you know, what is what you're doing and then what is being condemned. Now, some say, and I'm not saying I'm going necessarily going this route, that the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah were because they weren't good hosts. You know, and it wasn't that they wanted to know these men, these angels biblically, you know, they were just not good hosts, you know, and that's the biggest crime, you know, but some people kind of take these scriptures and they go that route. But I personally, I can definitely see how it's not productive to have two men having any kind of sexual intercourse if your objective for, uh, you know, you want people to go be fruitful and multiply. Yeah, like, so I was just about to say, so my biggest sin is I got a vasectomy. So, I, you know, that is just as equal of a sin where I cannot multiply now just like a gay man can't. Well, you still could. You just, you know, you're not yeah. gonna. <laughs> but uh, so like yeah. when we're talking about like that kind of like it's almost like a generational sin you've committed against the world, 
even that I've committed that, you know, not reproducing, not furthering humanity so that we can get to the next dimension of angelhood or whatever we're calling it, you know? Mm-hmm. But other than yeah. that, like, I think gay guys always pretty fun. They like me. So, <laughs> yeah, no, you guys, you guys are awesome. And, you know, that's the thing. It's like, whether you're going to procreate or not, you know, the issue of, for instance, I wanted to get castrated for a long time. I don't know if I brought this up last time, but I wanted to be castrated uh, because for me, I couldn't find a reconciliation with this issue. And I thought, well, I don't, I would rather be alone than, um, you know, be this type of person. So then I told my mom, I think I was 20, 21. I said, I'm going to get castrated. And I identified as a eunuch at that time, which is asexual in the LGBTQIAA. And, and so I'm going to be an asexual eunuch and I'm just going to pretend like I'm not attracted to guys and I'm going to just pretend like I don't have a sexual orientation and I'm all angelic. And this is, you know, I just transcend all that. And so um, that was my plan. And my mother quickly shot back. She was horrified and she's like, please wait a year. Like, think about this. And so smart lady. (laughs) Yeah. Well, she convinced me, even though I told her I had been thinking about it for years, like you have no idea. So I said, fine, I will for you, for mother, I will wait for her peace of mind. So every day around noon, I'd look up and I'd say, yep, still going to get castrated. Next day, yep, still going to get castrated. This went on for weeks and months and months, all the way until almost the year had been fulfilled. And I was ready and just let's get her done. And then right about that end period, I came across a book called Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, one of the best-selling self-help books of all time. And one of the final chapters in that book is called Sexual Transmutation. And in it, he's describing the uh, effects of uh, basically your sex drive on your ability to succeed, whether it's on a competitive level, maybe in the corporate world or in a football sense, you know, your mojo and this and that. And so beyond, you know, wanting to shut off my sex drive and not needing it because I don't need kids, there was kind of this other impulse that said, well, what if I, you know, got rid of that and I couldn't uh, climb a corporate ladder? I couldn't compete in whatever way I going to the future so the testosterone yeah so that that was my consideration and so for that reason if you know something else don't try to talk me out of it for that reason i said uh i'm not gonna get castrated and so i didn't and everybody was happy about that okay but then how often does this happen with this whole trans movement i had no idea that this was even an option or something that gay men thought about this is heartbreaking for me i don't even know what to say about this. Well, honestly, I've never heard another gay person say this. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if other asexuals, actual asexuals, were having those feelings every day. Um, part of it, I feel like, might be uh, rooted in a denial of what is and then a shame of what is and then looking for an easy route to fix that or like a sure way to cement that off. And so... Um, that seemed for me like a spiritually productive thing to do. In the book of Isaiah, it says that the eunuchs have a better name in heaven than the sons and daughters of God. And then the scriptures say that some are born eunuchs, some are made eunuchs by men, and some make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. So I was taking these verses and I was saying, okay, I will have a better name in heaven than the sons and daughters of God. And I could become a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. This all seems very noble, admirable reasons to do this. Um, So, but then there also exists, some people have an interpretation that says, and, uh, you know, 
it can't enter into the kingdom of heaven if you have mutilated genitals, or that the word eunuch actually only means bedkeeper, and that this is a a way of being, and it's not like eunuch as in sniff eunuch, and so the translations of the words are what. So there's kind of some opinions on that. For me, though, um, I decided that I was just going to let it play out, and I was not going to go into any relationships. And so I went until I was 25 years old without having been in a relationship. I had a girlfriend for a short period of time to try to force it. And I tried to also date another girl to force it. And it, you know, wasn't working. I wasn't interested. I was just lying to everybody and wasting all of our time. And um, so at the age of 25, when I was still saying, I'm not going to have a relationship, I was living with two lesbians who had found at roommates.com and they knew how I was, you know, I religiously minded and I wasn't and I was watching Yes Man with Jim Carrey and in that movie you know I was in self-help I still am I enjoy that but mostly hardcore spiritual stuff now but uh I really resonated you know with the whole process of oh he's going to sting and say yes to life and say yes to everything and I said I'm going to try that I know it's a movie but it's true I'm very miserable in some areas of my life so let me say yes to dating uh I got let me say yes, just to be a contrarian. And I could probably point some holes out of my own story, but hear how this, you know, probably shouldn't have happened. But I did it uh, to free myself from the situation. And so immediately I became, I found myself into a relationship with somebody. I never in a relationship. And that started on the first of the month and it ended on the last of the month. It was like a 30 day relationship. It was almost like, it was like, clockwork the very next day the first of the month another relationship started ended on the 30th i'm like man i'm in boot camp and then that ended on the end the next one started the very first day and that's funny that one went uh 10 months and then i learned a lot and all of these relationships have an abusive or dark element to them so as i'm going through i'm like i don't want that i don't want to be around that person i don't want to get hit or talk to you like that and then finally after that one ended i said you know Use law of attraction. I was reading a Deepak Chopra book called Life After Death, and I'm reading in my best Indian voice. I have a really great Indian voice. <laughs> and I said, I said, God, I said, bring me somebody like, and I made this extensive list of this perfect person. Somebody who could show me what I could be, you know, somebody who was loving and kind, and somebody who liked to travel and this, that, and the other, and all of these things. And I really said everything that was negative, I put it in the positive to make this affirmative statement of who I wanted. And a couple of weeks later, I ended up getting a chat message from this individual and uh, we started talking and that's who I'm with now. And we've been together now for 13 years. This person. Thank you. Uh, his name is Neil. He's Indian. I said, I said, send me somebody like Deepak Chopra is what I said. And then I stopped and said, Wait, Deepak is like 60 years old. I said, send me somebody like his son, Gotham, more my age. Okay. I didn't think about Gotham is not as religious as Deepak, and neither is Neil. But he <laughs> is a little bit religious. So he is completely uh, supportive of everything with Steiner and my spiritual scientific pursuits and this sort of thing. So uh, I found a really unique person uh, who understands that's special, me. Man. Yeah, that's so special. 13 years, that is... that is. I can feel it off of you. It's so nice. So what would you tell to somebody who's young in the LGBTQ community, but specifically struggling with the Christianity or religion aspect to that? 
I think the first and foremost important part is you don't want to force a, a conclusion or a decision on what you should do next based on anybody else's experience. So if I said, okay, here's Robert Wallace and he seems to have done his homework and this is where he ended up. And so we'll just cut the crap and then I'm just going to, I'm just going to go and do that. And then just disregard any other thing. Uh, a lot of the little, each of these issues I've had to contemplate and I've had to break apart and I had to understand, well, what part of this is sin? What are we really getting at? And, um, you know, do we want to pursue more of a, a sex-free life? Do we still want companionship? It is not good that man should be alone, like the Bible says. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what's the thing? And I think at the end of the day, we need to come to terms with how we feel about those things. Like, you can't just cut out God and say that I don't, I'm going to cut out God because it makes me feel ashamed. So I'm just going to do what I want and not going to think about that. If you cut yeah, out, here, here's the foundation of most religion. We're all born sinful or evil. And we were created this way. I got my own sins. B's got her own sins that we all have to battle. Everyone's got their own sins and all sins are created equal. You know, we all got to battle them. Right. Whatever, like, however, whatever. I don't know what that looks like for anyone, really. (laughs) Right. So we, we have the sin nature and we have to, uh, we have to balance our life according to that. Or we're simply people that are rudderless. We're moralless. We have no moral compass. And I would rather find all the ways where I am sinning in life and know that I am short, I'm coming up short in those areas than to give myself a false sense of security and tell myself I'm a good person. Yeah. I don't believe in good people. Honestly, Jesus, when they called him good, he said, why do you call me good? He said, no one is good, but the father in heaven. And so if Jesus can't even allow himself to be called good, how can we even contemplate thinking that we're good? And yeah. it really helps. I think the key here's here's one of my big nuggets that really is like a cornerstone in my psychological thinking, as what I was mentioning earlier. One of the shortcuts to ending all of the judgment that we're going to have to experience, so much of it is on the crux of this. Judge, and you will be judged. Yeah. Judge not, and you will not be judged. So the freedom from judgment has to do with our ability to free other people. So mm-hmm. there's the par- parable of the guy who owes the master money. And the guy says, pay me what you owe me. And he's like, I'm broke. I don't have anything. And the guy has compassion on him and says, fine, I cancel your debt. Go into the world. Be free of this. I release you. And what did that guy who was free do? He went to someone who owed him money. And what did he do? He shook him down. And he said, pay me what you owe me. So the first guy heard about it. and He said, I heard what you did. I just got done freeing you of your debt. And then you went and terrorized somebody else for the debt they owe you. Now I'm putting you in jail and you're going to pay the whole thing. Yeah. So in a certain way, God, Jesus forgives us. But if we are holding on to grudges of other people, we're holding ourselves by that same standard to a judgment also. Yeah. Yeah. Live by the sword, die by the sword. Like these are all (laughs) principles, you know? Yeah. Okay. So so that, I think I have one question to like wrap it all up in like we were taught ask Jesus into your heart and you know live a good follow the 10 commandments all that kind of stuff and you'll go to heaven but you have to ask him into your heart ask him to forgive your sins like is there a third part to that I think it's just I feel like it's so accept them into your heart. Is that like, do you agree with that? Is that like, is that the ticket in like, what's yeah, the ticket? How fundamental in? is he to your belief? Yeah. Like, what do you question? 
you know, like I told you, I went when I was at the various churches and I've been saved five, six, seven times. That is not biblical. I mean, the closest Bible verse they have from that is the time will come when man will cry out to God to be saved and will cry out to, you know, uh, in the name of Jesus uh, and that he'll be saved. So that's speaking of a certain time, but it's not saying you go and you just make a declaration and then all of a sudden your life is going to magically change and then you're going to be saved. That's what I thought for the longest time, which is why I was never content with my salvation because my life hadn't changed. I, I'm the same guy. I'm not getting any more guidance. And so it really does come down to a life of study and uh, discipline, getting knowledge, understanding, and wisdom, asking, believing, and receiving, and you know, having a vision. Without a vision, the people perish. You know, So we have a lot of instructions that if we do all of that, that, wis- that knowledge becomes wisdom. We see the wisdom in it when we do it for ourselves. And so uh, because it's, it's a lifelong journey, it's something you've got to work on every day. It's yeah. possible to backslide. You know, some people say, once saved, always saved. But, you know, you're just as free to come out of this agreement with God and to go into this other agreement as he is to not be in agreement with you. Everybody's there of their own free will. And so uh, I definitely believe that this has to do with a commitment to the truth, to finding God, to living according to your higher values, aligning yourself with those values as much as possible. And then... um Everything else that happens in life, being understanding of the imperfections that exist in this world with yourself, forgiving, you know, that will take care of a lot of stuff that we can't handle as far as our imperfections. Uh, But it is an active role. And if you are truly doing this because you want to go to heaven, you want to see God. We shouldn't stop at the statement and wait to die. We can pursue it. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Seek it first. Don't seek out your career first. Seek going into this other dimension first. And when you phrase it that way, all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait, now I have to really get down to why my soul and my psychology is this way. Or now I have to really understand meditation and inner peace and aligning my soul um, if I'm really going to be doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. So if we're followers, the instruction, we, we're told to follow the instruction. And so you got to do the instruction and not just say I'm a follower, be a uh, a doer of the word and not just a hearer only. Incredible. I feel like I am, I, am, there's so much to think about. I am so grateful that you did this with us and that you just kind of like let us answer or ask whatever questions came to mind. And again, like incredibly profound. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I love these conversations and it's not too often I get to talk to people who are so open-minded and, ready to dive into this kind of information. So you guys are awesome. Yeah, we're, we're honored to have you, honestly. Thank you. Fantastic. Well, uh, just to sum it up, I suppose, that was fantastic. If you guys want to support the show, maybe do you have a cool organization or somebody cool you want to try to get us to talk to? I know from all my some of my other shows, people have reached out to authors and I've had them on. Like, So if you like this kind of conversation... Yeah, and if you have some questions for Rob specifically, maybe we can get some together and get them back on. Yeah. Thanks. Well, one thing I do have a, a podcast. Well, I haven't made an episode in a while, but it's called Spiritual Realities. And uh, okay. I started it as an AMFM radio talk show when I lived in Memphis. And <laughs> it's actually in the station that Elvis first put his songs on. 
And then when I moved to Chicago, I turned it into a podcast and I've really kind of haven't abandoned it, but I've been busy. So I'm going to do more episodes, but you can go on Spotify. (laughs) (laughs) Is it weird to finish this episode by saying we'll probably go to sleep listening to you tonight? Is that, I love that. I cross a line. (laughs) Not at all. You know, you're always stimulating my thoughts here. The best way to fall asleep is to think about spiritual things before you go to bed, because we do ourselves a disservice when we go to bed thinking about materialistic things. Mm. And so, yeah, lighten up your thoughts before you go to bed. I love that. Nice. Amazing. Thank you so much, Rob. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Perfect. Thank you so much. We are honestly, this is awesome. Thank you, guys. Yeah, I really appreciate your uh, open-minded uh, open-ended questions so it was real fun yeah no I'm grateful that you kind of had all the information for us and like actually like I feel like yeah you like these questions you want the questions yeah, That's nice. yeah. cool well thank you again um if we get any questions or anything if we get a bunch we'll let you know and we'll have you on again but why might just toss you some and send out your email and all that stuff yeah do definitely like social media that you want me to include in this episode um yeah you know what i could email you uh some links to some of the and i'll include your your podcast in there too okay cool cool thank you so much i'll talk to you soon okay talk to you